Well, last week was Easter, and Easter is the most important celebration that the church has. And so there's a lot of pressure to live up to it as, as a pastor and as all the people who are volunteering to make things happen. And uh, when Easter is coming up, it's a bit, like, a bit like finals week. Any of you remember finals week? I know, that was a long time ago sometimes, but... But finals week, you, know, you have big tests coming up. And what do you do before your finals come? You cram, right? You study. You study for long periods of time. Maybe you pull an all-nighter. I never pulled an all-nighter because I was not nearly dedicated or disciplined enough to pull off even that. But, you know, you, when you are in the last moments before a deadline, that's when you really change your practices and change what you're doing. If you're going to school in Southern California like I did, you don't go to the beach, but instead you go to the library and you study, study, study. It's like the, when the orange harvest comes along. I heard a, a couple of gentlemen around here who have oranges and they got picked late and they were waiting and waiting and waiting for that day to come. And as they're waiting, there's more fruit falling off the tree, less that will go in the bin. Uh, I'm not you know, an orange expert, so I won't go into detail on this one. But in those last days before the harvest, you're living differently than those days just before. Some of us, uh, we know that we have fewer days in front of us than days that were behind us. And we might start to realize I may be living in my own personal last days. And it's causing you to think differently about the life that you've lived and the life that is left to you. But you know what? As God's people, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are living in the last days. People ask me this as a pastor all the time. Pastor, you know, I've been reading Revelation and all these other books. They talk about Jesus coming back and, you know, the Armageddon and all these big scary things. And I just want to know, do you think that we're living in the last days? And here is my response. As a matter of fact, we can just go right to Acts chapter 2. Okay, so it's from the Bible. It's not just my interpretation of something. Acts 2.17 in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Which days? The last days and they will prophesy. Peter is quoting the prophet Joel here. And he's explaining what people see happening in front of them right there. The disciples, uh, Jesus has just gone up to heaven and they've been waiting in an upper room and the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they go out and they start telling everyone the story of Jesus, the good news about Jesus. And no matter where people are from in the whole world, they hear the disciples speaking in their own language and they say, what's going on? And Peter says, this is a last days thing. We are living as the church in the last days the days immediately preceding when Jesus will return. And the book of Revelation is meant to point us to this reality. These are not days that are far off. They are days that are already here. And how are we to be the church in the last days? How are we, how are we to follow Jesus in the last days? What does God want from you and I in the last days? As the sports seasons wind down, 
since I'm a big sports fan. You know, you get to the end of football season. I know we're at the very beginning of baseball season, which goes on for like 18 years. Baseball plays a lot of games. But when you get to the very end, you're getting close to the playoffs, and people start playing harder because what do they have to do in order to have their seasons continue a little bit farther? They have to win. And isn't that how we often approach our lives day in and day out? We need to win. The days are running out. We have to win. We have to to beat the world in its game in one way or another. We have to you know, get prayer in schools. We have to get prayer out of schools. Or we have to you know, elect this person or not elect that person. At the very least, don't let that person in because a lot of elections are just about keeping that guy out instead of putting anyone else in. We have to win. We get in arguments with people around us or maybe they're just discussions, but really they're more like arguments. And we have to win, don't we? I have to show you, I have to convince you, I have to prove to you that you are wrong and I am right because that's what winning is about. It's someone wins and someone loses. We can't all win. And so, so often, we default to that in our lives, don't we? We read the news and we shake our heads because we think the wrong people are winning. Or maybe we even cheer because finally the right people are winning. Finally the Supreme Court did something that I can get on board with. There's something along those lines. Or the opposite, maybe. Because it's about winning and losing for so many of us. And it's the the way of the world. I'm not here saying, oh, we're just all terrible people because we're all about winning and losing. I'm saying this is what the world is like. There are winners And there are losers. And so obviously we would rather win than lose. But we're just just a little bit past Good Friday and Easter, aren't we? And Jesus had a really funny take on winning and losing. Jesus went to the cross and he allowed himself to be killed there. I mean, there are moments, if you read the the passion stories, the stories of Jesus' death from beginning to end, you sit down and do the whole thing. And it won't take you too long. I encourage you to do this. One thing that will jump out at you, unlike anything else, is that Jesus went to the cross because he chose to go to the cross and not because anyone made him do it. He wasn't surprised by the the mob of soldiers and angry people that that found him in the garden, right? He said, hey, guys, I just want you to know it's going to happen. Someone here eating dinner with me at this last supper is going to betray me into the hands of sinners. And then Jesus goes to the garden to pray for a while. And then, you know, after he comes back out and he sees, look, here comes my betrayer. He's not surprised. He knows what's going to happen. But he went to the garden anyway. There are people who say to Jesus, you saved others, you should save yourself, then we'll believe in you. I mean, frankly, if it was me on the cross and people were yelling that stuff at me, I'd get down. (laughs) I'd be like, you're right, check it out. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus goes to the cross and he loses on purpose. He is the only one, you know, well, you know, maybe not the only one now that we have betting in sports, you know, throwing games and stuff. But he's one of the only people in history who went somewhere choosing to lose. He's going to throw the fight. Jesus has a moment with Pilate, uh, Pilate the Roman governor in the area. And Pilate has the power to to execute him or to set him free. 
And Pilate says to him, hey, are you really the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, I am a king, but my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my people would be out there fighting for me right now. Pilate says, that makes a lot of sense. And he's afraid. He's afraid. This man, by all accounts, by all appearances, his life is in my hand, yet he acts like my life is in his. Jesus has a funny take on winning and losing. If we're really going to be followers of Jesus, we're going to win in a very strange way. As a matter of fact, we're going to throw the language of winning and losing out the window because Jesus isn't interested in going to the cross to condemn but to save. Jesus loses so everyone else can win. And he calls us, what does he say? Were you here on Good Friday? If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says, do it the way I did. What does God want from us in the last days? He's not interested in how many fights we can win. He's interested in a people who will be faithful witnesses. Be faithful witnesses. Let me tell you why this is true. Let me show you from Scripture. You could say this is a dumb way to be, but you can't say this is not the way Scripture tells us to be. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus speaking to the disciples before he ascends to heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice he says, I will give you power, but not to win to be witnesses. Revelation chapter 1, verse 2. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who witnesses to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 2, verse 10, Kelly read this for us, to the church in Smyrna. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. The job that Jesus has for us, if we're going to be like him, If we're really going to be followers of Jesus Christ, he's not interested in the number of battles we can win. He's interested in how well we can witness to him, testify to him. In Greek, this word witness or testify is martureo, martureo. It sounds like another word, martyr. As a matter of fact, it is that same word. Martyr, if you've been in the church for very long, you know we usually use to mean people who have died for their faith. But that's not originally the meaning that it had. It just meant to witness, to testify. And then as Christians testified, as they witnessed, as they were faithful even to the point of death, people started saying, look at that testimony. Look at those martyrs. Because that's what Jesus calls us to be. How do we be faithful witnesses? Does it seem hard in the world that we live in today? 
Are people begging for you to tell them about Jesus? Did you go to work this week or did you go to you know, whatever social gathering you have and all the non-Christians there said, I have been looking for someone to tell me about Jesus. Would you please tell me about him? Or is something of the opposite often true? Not always, but often true. Please keep Jesus to yourself. I think that's often the attitude that we encounter. And I I understand it. I'm not here to go, look at those horrible people. Go to hell, jerks. I'm not here to say that. But it isn't always easy to be faithful witnesses to Jesus when people don't want to hear about him. How do we be faithful witnesses? Well, let's go to the book of Romans. Again, we're still in the New Testament here. Romans chapter 8. This is verse 29. Those God foreknew, he also predestined. He chose. Those whom God decided upon, God chose for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Did you know that if you are here because you love Jesus. It's because God desires to make you something. He desires to make you like Jesus. That's what he saved you for, so that you would be like Jesus. You would be conformed to the image of his son. There are a lot of reasons for that, and I I can't pass it by without talking about at least a couple. The first is that, did you know Jesus is the very most human person who ever lived? When God created Adam and Eve, he didn't make them already broken. He made them whole, and they were without sin. And that means when we are people with sin, we are less human. We are less what God made us and intended us to be, but Jesus never sinned. He is what real, unstained, unspoiled, unsullied humanity looks like. Jesus is the most human person who ever lived in the very best sort of ways. He is the pattern after which we are made again. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, like Kelly was telling us about at the beginning of the service. And every piece of fruit or vegetable or whatever it is that's picked after that, you would expect to look like that first fruit. We are made, we are chosen to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. But here's the other thing. Not only is becoming like Christ and being a faithful witness in this way God's purpose for us, it's the only really effective witness at the end of the day. Let me take you to another place in the New Testament. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. It is so easy. Maybe the easiest thing is to be a Christian in name only, right? to be able to say the right things but never follow through in our lives on any of them. 
to be able to say Jesus loves the poor while we don't care for the poor. To be able to say Jesus loves the sinner while we feel free to hate the sinner. Man, look how badly they hurt me. Well, did they hang you on a cross? No, because that's what they did to Jesus and he loved him anyway. See, the entire Bible tells us, James is telling us here, put your money where your mouth is. Don't just say it, live it. And what is the world begging for us to do as well? as followers of Jesus Christ. What is the worst criticism that we get? It's when when people say, so that's what Christians are like. And we realize we didn't look anything like Jesus in that moment. And folks, sometimes we do it because, gosh darn it, we're just bent in our character. I meant to do the right thing and I did the wrong thing. Sometimes we do it because we decide, I know what the wrong thing is and I'm going to do it anyway. Because that's what I want right now. That's pretty broken human too. And there's grace to cover those things. But folks, sometimes we, sometimes we fail to live up to the example of Jesus Christ because we don't even know what we're supposed to look like and be like and live like. And do you think that, do you think that ignorance helps our witness and our testimony? Do you think that we are faithful witnesses when God says, hey, you know, you know you're not being anything like Jesus right now? He said, oh, I didn't know. God said, oh, well, that's fine then, gosh. I'm sorry. Do you think that we bring glory to Jesus Christ when we fail to be like him just because we didn't know? No. And listen, I, my goal is not to make anybody feel bad this morning. I don't like making people feel bad. I don't like feeling bad myself. So we're not going to live here. We're not going to stay here. But I think we might need to at least stop here for a moment and say, you know what, maybe my life, maybe there are places where because of inattention or because of flat-out rebellion or because of any other thing, I don't reflect Jesus Christ very well. And the world is demanding, you know, in order for them to know Jesus, they need to see me live like Jesus. It's not enough just to, to say the things that Jesus said without doing them. Jesus actually, once again, we'll just stick in James. James says, anyone who looks into God's word and he doesn't do what it says is like someone who goes and he looks into a mirror Oh, that's what I look like. Oh, okay. Then he walks away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. Can't remember. You know, here's, I learned some things when I look into a mirror. You know, I turned 40 last year. And uh, my my, last time I saw my dad, my dad said, you got some more gray in your beard than you used to. And I said, I know, maybe people at my church will stop thinking I'm such a little child all the time. That's great. Bring on the gray. I'm the only person who wants to look older. I've told you before, people every once in a while say, so what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Wow, you seem awfully young to be a pastor. Like, I, what, okay, I'm just very handsome. Like, what else am I supposed to do with this? Like, you're right, I'll quit. But anyway, <clears throat> I look into the mirror, and I see I don't look the way I did anymore when I was 20. Right? And let me tell you, there, there's some things about this that, that help me when I, remember, when I remember the fact that I'm getting a little bit older. 
when I remember the fact that I probably don't look as good as I used to. I don't know if you know this. You know, I've been here for 10 years. I've slowly been gaining weight that whole time. When I started here at the church, I weighed like 150 pounds, and now I weigh about 180 pounds. So I'm not saying it's your fault, but you know, you just make that connection however you want to. <clears throat> but here's the thing. If I always think of myself as that young, mildly attractive, you know, 20-year-old that I used to be, it changes the way I look at the people around me. I was having this conversation with somebody recently. You know, every once in a while, isn't it true, each and every one of us, I think it's true whether you're a man or a woman, you might see someone walk by and you go, ooh, that's a pretty good-looking person. And maybe some part of your mind or your heart starts to think, you know, what if, would they be interested in me? And I started to realize, no, no, they wouldn't. <laughs> And it's helpful to remember what my reflection tells me because it changes my expectations and it changes the way I live. And God help me, sometimes it protects me from stupid choices. Anyone who looks into God's law and doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at himself or herself in a mirror and walks away and immediately forgets what they look like. See, we be faithful witnesses by cooperating with God's purposes and plan for our lives, saying yes to what he calls us to. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. When it comes up, say yes. Secondly, the other way that we become more like Christ is by looking into his word. What did he say? Remember, what do we call, what's another phrase we use for the Bible? The Word, right? The Word of God. Uh, yes, book. That was actually really good because uh, Bible literally means book. So good job. But yes, the Word of God. That's what I was going for. Thank you for helping me out. And do you remember what John's gospel in particular loves to call Jesus? John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. How will we know Jesus if we don't know his word? If you want to do that, join a Bible study. Spend a little time in the word every day. Come to church and encounter the word here with a community of people. Listen to it on audiobook. You can find free copies of the Bible online you can listen to. Because the Bible, just like Jesus, is the word. If you want to be like him, Hide God's word in your heart from the book of Psalms, and you will not sin against him. But what good is it to become like Christ? Because Jesus died on the cross. What good is it to become like Christ in the face of the terrible injustices and evils in our world? Will we really change the world around us if we are willing to become like Christ, to be faithful witnesses? Let me tell you something about Jesus. First of all, Christ triumphs. Christ triumphs. Let me take you to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Every time I do this, I think I should mark all these places in my Bible. 
For those God foreknew, excuse me, Romans 8.37. I thought that didn't sound right. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You get that? The love of Jesus Christ has the last word in your life. Do you know anything else, anything else that you can't be separated from by death? or the vagaries of life, or spiritual powers, or the present, or the the future, or the past. We don't even know the future, right? Think about society's skepticism towards marriage these days. It makes sense, doesn't it? You're marrying someone, if you get married, you're marrying someone today who's going to be almost totally different in 15 years, and totally different again. They're going to change and change. That's the only guarantee you can make when you get married is that you are not going to be the same person today or tomorrow that you were today. And the person I fell in love with is the today and the before person. I don't know about this future person, which is why we make the promises in marriage. Let's say, I will stick with it and I will stick with you no matter how you change. Marriage promises, by the way, are a promise to stick in it no matter how unfair it gets. In sickness and in health, are you going to be sick an equal number of days in your life? Are you going to die at the same time? I hope not. That would be tragic. Marriage promises are a promise that I'm going to stick with it no matter how unfair it gets. Jesus triumphs. Because nothing can overcome his power. And it says it again here in Revelation 3, verses 11 to 12. And in the passage we read to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, how are they victorious? Hold fast to what you have. That's all he asks of them. Did he ask for them to go out and transform the world by their lives or by their power or by anything else? He just said, hold fast to what you have. And the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and never again will they leave it. They'll have God's name and the name of the city of my God and my new name. What do you need a a new name for? Well, I think in some way Jesus is just saying, I'm going to add the word champion to your name. Just hold on to what you have. Christ triumphs. That's why we can hope in him. Christ rules. Philippians 2 Verses 9 to 11, the great Christ hymn. As a matter of fact, this particular passage, Philippians 2, we think is an early Christian hymn. We don't have the music, but we've got the lyrics. And if it's a hymn, it means it predates the letter that Paul was writing to the Philippians, which means it might be one of the very earliest pieces of the New Testament out there. What does it say? Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, and so God exalted him. 
to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. There's that new name again. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He rules in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What good is it to become like Christ? Jesus rules. He is the last man standing because death has no victory over him. And finally, and relatedly, Jesus lives. John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Revelation 2.10, that other letter we read to the church in Smyrna. Remember, what did, what did he say? The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, which is symbolic, of course. It's not like, count them down, like 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and it's over. He says, no, for a period of time, you will suffer persecution. And then here's what will happen. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I, I don't know, again, you watch sports, what happens at the end of the Super Bowl and the World Series and, and all of those things? What do they do? What? Sorry, I heard a lot of muttering, but I, I was talking too loud. I couldn't. They celebrate, and what happens during that celebration? The commissioner comes out, and what do they do? They give him the trophy. Right? I, I especially love, you know, I, hockey and soccer have the best traditions around the trophies. In, in soccer, you, you, you get the trophy, and everyone gets to hold it for a little bit, and everyone kisses the trophy, so it's really gross by the end. <clears throat> but it's a way of celebrating. And then they all go to a stage, and they, they raise it up to all their fans and all their supporters, and they do it multiple times, and they cheer, and everyone yells, and it's really cool. And, but hockey, I think, is even better, because I'm pretty sure they take the Stanley Cup, and they fill it with beer, and then they all go into the locker room and do whatever they do there, so... But in any case, that trophy, that's the symbol. Look what you've done. Look what you've accomplished. But you know what the thing about trophies is? Once you've had the celebration, you put them on the shelf and they gather dust and they're done. As a matter of fact, some pro athletes, like especially in football and basketball, you get your ring, right? And they, they're more and more ostentatious every year. They're too ostentatious to wear for the most part. And when athletes fall on hard times, what do they do? They sell their rings. Because what value are they really? But here's what Jesus says. He says, your trophy is life. A life that never fades, that never becomes less, that is incorruptible, that is held in heaven for you. Life to live forever. What good is it to be like Christ in this broken world? It's the only thing that lasts. It's the only thing that at the end of the day wins. It's the one true thing that rules. See, we think we have to convince people to love Jesus, right? We think we have to go out and accomplish some great thing for God. We think we have to prove yeah, Jesus is really the greatest. I have this carefully constructed list of arguments, or you know, I've, I've 
solidified them all into a nice brick of things that I'm just going to bash you with until you agree that Jesus is really great. Does that sound like people are really going to be excited to become Christians if you just hit them hard enough with the truth? But what if, what if we showed in the way that we live the value of our faith every single day? And then here's the follow-up question. Are we living like that or not? I was just on, we were at the coast for a few days. It was kind of a working vacation, you know, during the day, do some hiking, sometimes during the day and sometimes at night, doing some work and just getting out of context for a little bit. And I remember thinking on my vacation, okay, part of me just needs to decompress for a while because Easter's crazy and I, 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 need, I need a little break. But, but how am I decompressing? you ever gone on a vacation, you come back and you feel just as tired or more so than when you went? You weren't refreshed at all. You ever had that experience? Because I have it. I have it. And I'm pretty sure it's because we're not actually living our faith when we're on a vacation. Not because our faith is more work to do, but because it is a gift to be lived. And I wonder how I could structure my whole life around finding my rest in the victory Jesus won for me instead of sports and TV and you know whatever other ways I waste my time. It's not because those things are bad in and of themselves. They're good, and they can even give us a sort of rest, but they won't satisfy, not the way Jesus satisfies. And see, here's where Revelation, I think, makes a unique contribution in our understanding of all of this. When we live a faithful witness sort of life, one of two things is going to happen. Either people are going to see that and go, that's the life I want. And they'll become ready to meet Jesus. Or... Instead, they'll say that is exactly what we are diametrically opposed to, and we will have nothing to do with it. This is the way people responded to Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus would go out and teach, and some of the crowds would be like, wow, this is amazing. And the other people in the crowds would go like, let's figure out how to kill this guy. There, weren't, there wasn't like an in-between group that was saying, well, we haven't really made up our minds about Jesus yet. Your heart burned. And either you gave in to the burning or you did your best to put it out. And if we really live like Jesus, the same thing will happen through our lives. And that means that people will have revealed what's really in their hearts. Do they really love the truth and seek it with all their hearts? Or are all of their grand pretensions to be pursuing truth actually a way of just pursuing what they want? of saying, I will be my only God, and no one else, no one else can make a ruling in my life. Did you notice that this is, this is what's actually happening in our culture these days? This is the lie of secular pluralism, right? Secular pluralism, right? It's this idea we should just let everyone believe what they want, think what they want, do what they want. But no one lives that way, do they? No one says you should just think what you want, do what you want, believe what you want. Because first of all, if you tell somebody you should think whatever you want, you're actually telling them, that's what you should think. Right? It's self-refuting. Self it's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. 
But secondly, the folks who are saying, oh, you know, we, sh- we, should let, we should let people do whatever they want, be whatever they want, think whatever they want. What they're really saying is, as long as I'm okay with it. Because you notice certain ways of thinking, certain things that people say are verboten, which is German for forbidden, and because it's German, it sounds scarier, I think. <laughs> See, it's not really about pluralism in the end. As a matter of fact, the only true pluralism is in Christianity because Christianity says ultimately you will be responsible for the choices that you make and you are free to make whatever choices you want, but you will be held accountable. You are free to believe whatever you want, but you will be held accountable. The promise of Christianity is at the end, God will give you what you want. Have you desired him? You will get him. Have you desired anything else? You will find out just how unworthy that desire was. Because God will give that to you as well. See, that's what Revelation teaches us. This is still true. It wasn't just true during Jesus' ministry. It's true today. When we live as truly Christ-like people, when we are really faithful witnesses, we will, God will, by the Holy Spirit, reveal what is in the hearts of the people around us whether they are willing to bow their knee before him or whether they will demand that all knees bow to them. And yes, the Christian may in this life suffer for that. Did you notice in the letter to the church at Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Man, I hate when the Bible says stuff like that. I want to be like, you don't be afraid. Who do you think you are telling me not to be afraid of what I'm about to suffer? Tell me I'm not going to suffer. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer because it's not the end, because it's not the last word, because you are safe. Your life is held with Christ and God. No one can take it away from you. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your living trophy.